Well, let's pray then, and we'll go ahead and and, uh, start our teaching time. Father, I too thank you that you have given us this time together, and even what is a simple gathering of your saints is a very precious thing. It reminds us of the unity that we have by your intent, by your power, through your spirit in Jesus our Lord. And Father, we know that what you accomplished in him was more than just satisfaction for offense, more than just the putting away of guilt, more than just a dealing with unrighteousness in the way that we tend to think of it, but it was truly the powerful cosmic work of putting to death the curse, of undoing that which had come through human rebellion and inaugurating an entirely new reality, a new creation in the resurrection of Jesus our Lord. And by that resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, everything is changed. And what we testify in this world, if we are testifiers of your gospel, is that you have inaugurated a new creation, evident in a new community of human beings who live their lives, not just individually, but in community in a new and a living way, a way that testifies to those who are onlookers that something profound has changed in the world of human beings. And we thank you that even in gathering together as this group in this place, we are bearing witness of that. And I pray that your people throughout the world gathered this day in worship, in devotion, that not only in their gathering, but in their their going out and the the living of their days, that they would be mindful and sober-minded about being testifiers in this way that they would understand and live out the preciousness of your church, even as it is the first fruits of this renewal and in gathering that will one day take everything into its grasp. So, Father, as we've gathered in the name of Jesus, our Lord, in his life by your spirit, I pray that you would make us of one mind and heart, of one purpose, that your spirit would lead us and guide us in, in unity, in true devotion, unity of heart and mind to Jesus, our Lord. Teach us, bind us together, and in all these things, Father, not only grow us up as individuals, but grow us together as the body of Christ, that we would truly be the living witness of the gospel in the world as you intend. So bless us in this time. We consecrate it to you, and it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, that we ask you all these things. Amen. Well, from our text, we see that we've come to the episode of the golden calf, very familiar, I think, to most Christians and even to um, a certain amount of non-Christians. It's one of those Bible stories that a lot of people are familiar with. And we know that Moses, after the ratifying of the covenant and the fellowship meal that Israel had with God on the mountain, Moses went back up on the mountain for 40 days And during that time, he received the provision, God's instruction concerning the sanctuary, uh, as well as also the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood that would mediate the relationship between God and Israel. And during that time, as Moses was gone, he was gone for 40 days, 
of the people of Israel sitting basically at, at uh, Sinai at the foot of the mountain became increasingly unsettled and concerned about what, what this was going to mean for them. Month and a half basically passing by and they're wondering where is Moses? Is he even going to come back? What's that going to mean for us? And as time went on, it got to the point of even a fearfulness that they would likely die there at Sinai if Moses didn't come back. Why? Because he was God's chosen mediator, the one who was uh, appointed to stand between them and God, the one through whom God would lead them. And if Moses was gone, if he didn't return, who was going to lead them from Sinai to Canaan? Who would lead them into the promise that God had made for them? made concerning them and made to them. So they sought then, the, the episode of the gold calf represents them seeking from Aaron help in solving that problem. If Moses, the mediator, was not going to return, they needed another point of contact and interaction with God so that they could continue on to Canaan. So they asked him to help them to construct an image by which they could move forward. In other words, an instrument to replace Moses. That's what the golden calf was fundamentally about. And when we understand that background, as well as even the text itself, if you paid close attention to the way in which uh, the, the narrative tells its story, it really argues against what is a common notion, even among Christians, that the issue here was Israel was abandoning Yahweh, the God of Israel, in favor of other gods, whether gods they had come to know in Egypt or gods associated with Canaan or whatever, you know, the, the Near Eastern peoples around them. But effectively, the, the idea is often thought by people, oh, making this gold calf, they were abandoning their God. And that was not the case at all. Actually, their offense was, in many ways, much more serious than that. What they were doing was seeking to find an alternative way to continue to interact with their God, a point of interface with their God in the absence of the man Moses, whom God had appointed to serve that role, to mediate the relationship between them and him. And you see that uh, even in the way that it begins. This is your God when they make the gold cap. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron doesn't say this is Baal or this is, uh, you know, whatever God of Babylon or whatever. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And he builds an altar in front of this gold calf. And he says, tomorrow will be a day of feasting to Yahweh. That term, that Hebrew term, for a feast is most often used in the Old Testament in relation to the three pilgrimage feasts of Israel, the three times a year when Israelites were required to go up to Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and um, the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles in the fall. And so he's saying, in view of this image of Yahweh, and he builds an altar whereby that uh, image can be interacted with in a worshipful way. He says, tomorrow we will consecrate the day as a feast to Yahweh. So this is a way in which the people are thinking about how to continue their relationship with their God in Moses' absence. 
So it is a crisis of faith and a very serious offense, as we're going to see, but not in the way that we commonly assume. They weren't rejecting Yahweh for a different deity, but attempting to interact with him according to their own natural sensibilities and reasoning. And what I hope that we'll take away from this today as we think about this is how we, even as individuals throughout our lives, and perhaps even in living our Christian lives, and you know this, this struggle of relating to God properly, how we naturally tend to want to think about God and relate to him and interact with him, what we think our relationship with him is and, and what it should look like. And I think that we'll see in our own natural tendencies very much the same thing that was driving Israel in this circumstance. So fundamentally then in the ancient world, and even to some extent today, though it's maybe more subtle and sophisticated, but in the ancient world, every people group had their own gods. Gods that they believed took an interest in them and their well-being. Gods that were associated with their geographical location, their nation, their lands, the gods of the people. And that perspective enabled them to have a sense of personal and national identity. We are Sumerians. These are our gods. We are Hittites. These are our gods. We are Babylonians. These are our gods who care for us, who fight for us. And I gave you these citations here of Isaiah 10 and Psalm 96, and we won't read those now, but I want you to look at them. But in Isaiah 10, there is this conviction on the part of the Assyrians that they have triumphed in in going out and fighting against the various nations on their march towards Jerusalem. They end up, remember, conquering the northern kingdom with its capital at Samaria. But as the Assyrians are increasing their empire, they are boasting about how they have vanquished the gods of these nations. When they conquered a nation, they saw it as the triumph of their gods over their gods. And so they say, as we have triumphed over Carchemish and these other places, so we will trample over the god of of the Israelites. Our gods are more powerful than that god. And so military victory, um, imperial power, uh, you know, the, the uh, prosperity and, and wealth and, and glory of a kingdom was a testimony to the power of its gods. That's how the ancient world worked. So nations looked to their gods for guidance and provision, and they attributed their own circumstances, both individually as well as nationally, Uh, whether good or bad, to those gods. This bad thing has come upon us because of our unfaithfulness to our gods. These good things have happened to us. We have triumphed because our gods are favorable to us because we have worshipped them properly or interacted with them in a proper fashion. And that was true even amongst the Israelites, right? Remember when the man asked Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? That's the way we naturally think. The gods do good things to good people. The gods do bad things to bad people. If something bad happens, then I must have offended my gods in some way. And so in the ancient world, there was this constant conscious energy devoted towards appeasing and ministering to and serving the needs of the gods so that the gods would continue to sustain and preserve and look out for our well-being. That's the way the ancient world functioned. 
So it implies then the belief in ancient peoples that they were able to gain access to their deities, that their supposed gods that they acknowledged and conceived and, and worshipped. They believed that they were able to gain access to those deities and to solicit from them the deity's attention and the deity's care. And that lies behind this fundamental principle that I mentioned before, which is that human religion is magic. Magic not in the sense of we think of sleight of hand or trickery, but magic in the sense of, of manipulating tangible things, entities, rituals, rites, whatever, in order to um, make contact with and make amenable and make useful spiritual powers or forces. Whether it's, you know, any form of pagan religion or whatever, witchcraft, whatever, there's the manipulating of things, spells, incantations, making of whatever, and manipulating things in order to achieve expected outcomes, to, in a sense, make the powers or the forces or the gods amenable to our agenda. And all human religion functions in that way. As I said, I think last time, even much of what we call the Christian religion functions in that way. Many Christians function in that way. And we all struggle at some level at some times to not fall prey to that way of thinking. But religion as magic is a, is a universal human phenomenon. And as I write here, it refers to a mindset process and techniques by which men attempt to make spiritual entities and forces, however they may conceive them, accessible, amenable, and useful to them. And this isn't whether you believe in God or not. This is universally human, humanly true. Uh, you know, an atheist might deny the existence of deities, of gods, but all humans seek ultimately to their own benefit to, con to conform transcendent principles that they believe exist, whatever they are, to cause those forces to, uh, to work to their own advantage. They try to come alongside and, and live in accordance with principles that govern the universe in order to make things work for them. Some people even talk about praying to the universe or listening to the universal mind or whatever it happens to be. So this isn't just an issue for people who happen to believe in God or gods. And in the ancient Near East, people believed that gods were present and accessible to them in relation to physical images that re, um, represented them. We talked at the beginning of this series that even what's being represented in Genesis 1 and 2 is God constructing a sanctuary for himself to dwell in. And in the ancient world, when a temple or a sanctuary was built, the last thing that was done was a physical image representing the deity that inhabited that sanctuary. An image was constructed and set in the midst of that temple, and that became the interface between the worshiper and the deity. And we'll see the implications of that uh, even today in terms of man as that image who is the last capstone of God's creation set in his garden sanctuary. So the image brought the God and the worshiper together, and this is the mindset behind what Israel was doing. Believing that they'd lost Moses, their mediator, the Israelites were seeking a new point of mediation in a tangible image of Yahweh. 
And through that image, they could appeal directly to him, they believed, in the hope that he would lead them on towards Canaan, a new point of interface and interaction. And so I wanted to just kind of tie this into even the second commandment, because I think that idea is often misunderstood in terms of, you know, what does it mean you shall not make a graven image or represent the Lord in creaturely form or whatever? And I've known people who go so far as to um, not buy books that maybe on the the dust jacket have a, uh, you know, a Renaissance era painting, you know, depiction that has Jesus in it or something, because that's a violation of the second commandment. And that's not the point at all. The issue in the commandment isn't creating or viewing a religious depiction or even expressing the creator in creaturely form. That's precisely what the incarnation is. If God had a problem with him being represented in creaturely form, then we either have to deny the truth of the incarnation or say that it wasn't a work of God. And indeed, man is himself the image of God. Which image is fully manifested in Jesus the Messiah? We talked about this in the men's study yesterday. When Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father, he's not talking about his deity. He's talking about his humanity. He's saying, when you see me, the Son of Man, when you see me, you see the Father in truth. Because man is, when man is truly man, he is the image and likeness of God. And by God's own design, he would be fully exhaustively manifested and known and and accessed and, and interacted with by his creation in and through the human creature, specifically Jesus himself. And the accord between man and God is such that God, in remaining eternally fully God, has humanized himself in the incarnation. God is forever humanized in the second person of the Trinity, right? So I don't want to go down that path, except just to say that it can't be an issue of you can't represent the immaterial God in material terms. We argue against everything that we hold as essential to Christian faith and truth if we make that argument. So the issue with the second commandment and what you see even with the gold calf is idolatry as, as it's associated with images. In other words, images, physical um, uh, constructions that are con- concocted instruments of self-interest interface with powers or forces or deities for the sake of achieving personally intended and sought after outcomes. So what Yahweh was forbidding in the second commandment of the Decalogue was the universally human practice of devising gods in one's own image, which in itself is antithetical to the truth that God made man in his image. All religion is man conceiving God or God's deity in his own image, formulating an understanding of deity and then formulating a way to access and interact and make that deity useful to my agenda. That's what all human religion is. That's the way we as human beings naturally think. So Gerhardus Vos says this, he says, we must set aside this whole modern way of thinking about the matter, what matter, the matter of uh, this thing of the commandment and that God was simply forbidding representations of him in tangible creaturely form. 
We must endeavor to reproduce for ourselves the feelings with which the ancient idolatrous mind regarded and employed the image it possessed of its God. This is what God was dealing with in the second commandment. While not easily described in its true inwardness, we may perhaps define it by subsumption under the category of magic. There's that idea. Magic is that paganistic reversal of the process of true religion, true faithfulness, true relationship with God is what he's getting at, in which man, instead of letting himself be used by God for the divine purpose, drags down his God to the level of a tool, which he uses for his own selfish purpose. Because it lacks the element of objective divine self-communication from above, it must needs create for itself material means of compulsion that will bring the deity to do its bidding. And so the Decalogue's second commandment was God prohibiting natural human religious conceptions and practice, if you will, natural human spirituality. God insisted that his people were to interact with him in truth. Well, what does that mean? It means according to the way he disclosed himself to them and disclosed themselves to themselves covenantally, who he identified them to be by covenant calling and election, ratified through covenant relationship. They were to relate to him in truth according to that definition. In other words, as image sons with their creator, Lord and Father. So the commandment speaks to the very essence then of covenant faithfulness, the commandment against idols or forming of images. And in that we see the severity of Israel's first covenant violation. This is the first national violation of the covenant. After repeatedly saying all that the Lord requires we will do, Moses wrote the words in a book. He sprinkled the people with the ratifying blood, and they said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And this is the first national covenantal violation, and it's of that severity. It cuts at the very heart of what it was for Israel to be faithful to their God. It exposed this innate human idolatry that still reigned in the Israelites' hearts. Idolatry, interestingly, facilitated by the very man Aaron, whom Yahweh had designated to mediate his relationship with his covenant children. In a way, Aaron was the one who was to mediate a true knowledge of God to Israel and Israel to be truly and accurately mediated in its relationship back to God. And Aaron becomes the facilitator of their idolatry. We see in that as well another dimension of this failed covenant. God had given them already... On the mountain, he'd given Moses the provision of the priesthood. And before that's even in place, the man who's the fountainhead of the priesthood, Aaron, has already shown himself to be an unfaithful priest. This is nothing but unfaithfulness upon unfaithfulness. So how does God then respond? How does God respond? How does Moses respond? Well, God tells Moses what they have done, and he states his intention to destroy the nation and raise up a new people for himself through Moses. And on the face of it, it's a startling thing to consider because what God was, in a sense, intending to do was to dismantle everything he had done to that point. He had made his covenant with Abraham, passed that on to Isaac, passed it on to Jacob. Jacob became the man Israel. The man Israel became the nation of Israel, the seed of Abraham through whom God's covenant would work out its purposes of blessing and renewal 
on behalf of the whole earth, and now God was rolling that back. He was going to, in a sense, form a, an entirely new people through Moses. No longer would the covenant household be the 12 tribes related to Israel, the man Israel, Jacob, but Moses would become a new Jacob. He would become the fountainhead of, of a new covenant family. And in that way, it's, it's a rolling back, but at the same time, God was not throwing the covenant away because the covenant was with Abraham and his seed, and Moses was a descendant of Abraham. It's just God was now going to localize this covenant family in Levi. Instead of it being 12 tribes, it would be strictly the Levites. And in fact, as we'll see next time, when Moses goes down and confronts Israel, he calls all those who are on the side of the Lord to come over to him, and it's the Levites who do. So in a very real way, God's own intention to, in a sense, establish the Levites in Moses as a new Israel, they show themselves to be the remaining Israel in that context. And we'll talk about that next time. So God did remain committed to his covenant with Abraham. Israel in its present form would be no more, but the line of covenant descent and Yahweh's covenant household would still be traced through Abraham, just now through Jacob's one son, rather than through the 12 of them. So Moses then, in this intent of God, is confronted with two options. He could embrace that outcome to his own benefit and exaltation, or he could refuse it out of the conviction of faith. In other words, on the one hand, God was affording Moses the incredible privilege of becoming the fountainhead of a new covenant household. He would assume that enviable place of the patriarch Israel and see God's promise to Abraham now realized through himself. And he certainly was in complete agreement with God about the severity, the the unbelievable hubris of Israel in violating the covenant. He was just as upset about it as God was. So he wasn't in any sense saying, I don't understand why you're so upset about this. He understood and agreed with God concerning the severity and outrageousness of that. And yet the same faith and faithfulness that fueled Moses' indignation, his coming alongside God in that indignation, also provoked his intercession. What did Moses end up doing? We read that he pled with God to relent. He pled with God to relent from that course of action, but importantly, not out of concern for Israel as such, but out of jealousy for God. Moses' concern was that by destroying his covenant people, Yahweh would undermine his own integrity and credibility, not just or even primarily among the children of Israel, but in the sight of the nations who would observe his dealings with his people. I cite here Numbers 14, and that's, that's a similar thing when the spies come back from spying out the land, and 10 of them give a bad report, and they say, oh, yeah, it's a great land, it's fertile, it's fruitful, it, it is like the Garden of Eden. Oh, but the people of that land are giants, and they're strong, and they're mighty, and their cities are invincible, and, and oh, we'll never be able to take the land. And Joshua and Caleb are the two who say, no, trust the Lord. We need to trust the Lord in this. But because of the spies' report, the people of Israel lose heart. 
and they're ready to stone Moses and Joshua and raise up new leaders to take them back to Egypt. They're getting ready to head back to Egypt. And in that context, God says, I'm going to destroy them once again. And Moses, I'll make you a great nation. And once again, Moses intercedes. He says, don't do it. What will the nations think? They know that you brought your people out of Egypt. They know of your intent to give them the land. They know that this is happening. What will be the outcome? What will the people think? They'll say he was not able to fulfill his word. He was not powerful enough. He was not faithful enough. So that's the idea here. God would undermine his own integrity and credibility. So Aaron, whose mediation was really just self-serving deference to the people, and he says, oh, all I did is I just threw their jewelry in the fire and this, this calf popped out. I didn't do anything. You know, I just, they, they were pushing me so hard. But in contrast to that, Moses interceded as a true mediator. He acted out of jealousy for God's veracity, God's reputation, and an understanding, importantly, of the larger role and significance of the covenant in God's purposes. Moses thus depicts the sort of man who is suited to stand before God as intercessor for others, and hence his typological function in the salvation history. Moses will say to Israel later, 40 years later, when they're about to enter the land, God will raise up for you another prophet like me, and you must listen to him. Whoever whoever will not heed his voice will be cut off from the people. He will be the faithful, true intercessor. So the prophet like Moses is one who will faithfully be the mouth of God to the people and represent the people according to God's own interest in mind and heart, according to his covenant intent. So God then responded to Moses' intercession by relenting of his intent. And, and probably you, I know certainly me, this, this passage is a lightning rod for a biblical proof text that prayer gets God to change his mind about things. If we pray fervently enough, you know, we can get God basically to bend himself to our will. We can get him to change his mind. And on the other side of that coin, people of a more Calvinistic persuasion tend to bristle and say, no, 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 God is sovereign, God is immutable. And so there's a wrestling with how could this possibly be? How can God change his mind? God is immutable. God is sovereign. God is eternally predestined exactly how this would take place. Well, those aren't the concerns that are in view here. And, and that's, that's what I wanted to get at in terms of this importance of reading the text in the way it wants to be read. We have to guard against the tendency to impose doctrinal constructs and personal sensibilities and convictions onto a text, any text, and certainly the biblical text, and in that way then fail to hear its message. Our predetermined convictions and conclusions will inevitably lead us to ask of a text questions that lead back to the answers we've presumed. It's just like in in the field of science, if you let your theory drive the way you look at and process and accept the data, you will inevitably prove your hypothesis because you will throw out the data points that don't fit. You'll say, oh, this is spurious, that's spurious, and you end up proving what you preassumed. And we do the same thing with the scripture. So this text is not a proof text for divine sovereignty, and it's not a theology of prayer. 
in context, its concern is with answering the question of how God's covenant relationship with Abraham's offspring will be preserved, how it can be preserved. In other words, how he will uphold his own faithfulness to the covenant and its purposes in the context of the unfaithfulness of the covenant people. In his book, The Fabric of Theology, Richard Lintz says this, the meaning of a text like Exodus 32 is intimately wrapped up with the epical significance of Moses as a mediator of the covenant and the canonical significance of his action as a foreshadowing of Christ. Epical means where it sits at that place, an epic, where it sits at that point in the development of the salvation history. And And um, canonical significance means where it fits in the overall completed uh, accomplishment of God in Christ. So you have these horizons, you have the immediate context, then you have the epical context. Where does this sit in this place in the development, the unfolding of the salvation history? And then ultimately, how, how does this fit into the ultimate accomplishment of God in Christ? And that's what Lintz is getting at. The epical and canonical horizons help to determine which questions are important to the passage and which are not. Failure to pay attention to the epical and canonical horizons, in other words, to read the story in its own context and to see where it ultimately goes in relation to God's work in Christ, that would lead the modern reader into the mistake of reading the passage too narrowly. For instance, focusing on the question of whether prayer can change God's mind. This is not the fundamental question of the text. The question that the epical and canonical horizons want to ask of the passage is who might be an acceptable mediator between God who is faithful and the Israelites who are unfaithful on behalf of the covenant and what the covenant is ultimately about. Not just God's relationship with Israel, but where that relationship fits into God's purposes ultimately for the whole cosmos bound up in the one Israelite who's the Messiah himself. That's the thread that links this particular passage to the rest of the scriptures. And we must not lose sight of that as we attempt to build a biblical theological framework. So just some summary observations then very quickly. It's only been a matter of days now, and Israel has already shown itself to be an unfaithful son. Its relationship with the covenant father will have to be a a matter of mediated distance, managed distance. It will be a mediated relationship. The intimacy in the fellowship meal in uh, chapter 24, that's gone. Israel will be a son with the father at a distance. And Yahweh provided for that first in Moses as mediator and then in the Levitical priestly system. In other words, the point is God would sustain his son, Israel, the covenant son, in the face of the son's inability to fulfill its sonship. And what this episode shows is that Israel's failure revealed that it was no different from all the other people. Israel was God's election for the sake of his reclaiming of the rest of the human race. Israel was to be the instrument by which God would bring in all the families of the earth, reconcile them to himself. But Israel was in need of the same reconciliation. They were no different from all the other peoples and nations. They were son of God in name only. The nation was actually an idolater, just like all of the other human families and peoples of the earth. 
Yes, they had the privilege in being allowed to know the living God through his words and deeds. Yes, they were covenantally bound to him, but they were determined from the outset to form him in their own image according to their own sensibilities and perceived interests. And this will define them throughout their life with God, throughout their generations. So what was their obligation under the covenant? It was to fulfill their identity and calling as son of God on behalf of the world. It was that simple. And the path to that was that they were to yield to their covenant father in sincere dependence, humility, unwavering trust, faithfulness, and undistracted devotion. In other words, what Paul would call faith working through love, the life of sonship. And that's the context in which we interpret the golden calf, whether we're thinking about Israel's actions, God's reaction, Moses' intercession. So their action was the manifesting of their idolatrous hearts. They weren't abandoning Yahweh. They were believing they could relate to him and interact with him on their own terms, according to their own conceptions, their own judgment, their own concerns. And so his indignation, the ferocity of his response to that was appropriate to that form of unfaithfulness because Israel was his image son, according to his electing intent that the world should come to know him in truth through that son's faithfulness. And instead, Israel had testified falsely of him, aligning itself actually with the human world against him. How so? By joining mankind in fashioning the true and living God in their own image according to their own notions and self-interest. They showed themselves to be no different from the nations. And the scripture will refer to Israel in that way, even using the language of Sodom and Gomorrah to define them, right? A very shocking thing for an Israelite to hear that God equates them with the people that they epitomized in their own minds or or saw in their own minds as the epitome of human alienation and rebellion and opposition and uncleanness. And God said, you are Sodom and Gomorrah. They were no different from the rest of the world. They were to bear truthful witness to the world so that the world would come to know their God. And instead, they joined the world in lying against their God, in thinking of him and relating to him in the same way that all the nations would deal with him. And so Moses shared God's same indignation. Moses understood the gravity of what they were doing, but he also shared God's jealousy for his creation and God's jealousy for his intentions for his creation. And so he pled with Yahweh to relent, not because he was compassionate or concerned for his Israelite brethren per se, but because he was concerned to see the Lord's name, power, and purposes rightly attested and exalted among the watching nations. So the Lord honored Moses' petition, not because fervent prayer moves him to respond accordingly, but because Moses' prayer gave voice to his own solidarity with his God and God's designs that he had determined to realize through Abraham and his seed. In other words, by honoring Moses' faithful petition, the Lord was affirming and displaying his own abiding faithfulness. Moses was jealous for God, and God's response was his jealousy for himself and his own intent. 
And that's how the text wants you to understand what's happening here. And it's just the beginning of this process of a God who will uphold his covenant intent in spite of the fact that the the people of the covenant cannot and will not fulfill their calling. Somehow God will cause Israel to be Israel. Somehow he will cause the seed of Abraham to fulfill its sonship on behalf of the rest of the world. And that's the way the New Testament understands the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is that seed of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth are blessed. Well, let me go ahead and pray then, and, um, and then we will introduce the table and, and take the table together, and then we'll close in song. Okay? Let me pray with us. Father, I know this is a lot to digest, and it may be more or less familiar to some that are here. But really, these are the very foundational things of of the Christian faith. These are the foundational things of what it means to know Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, the one in whom we find our life, the one in whom we find our very existence, the one whose name we claim when we take the title Christian. And Father, I pray that we would each be burdened in our own heart with the recognition of how profoundly we individually and your church corporately needs to be conformed to these truths, needs to be bound to them, needs to reclaim them. In a time where much of what we see in in the Christian world in the West, we see very much what resembles Israel's own life with you, what happened at Sinai with the gold calf. We see a Christian community where people are content to form their own conception of who you are, form their own conception of who Jesus is, and always in a way that will serve their own interests and their own agenda, their own well-being, their own sense of what their lives should be in the world. Father, we are, as Calvin said, guilty of that truth that The human mind is a perpetual idol factory, and we fall prey. Even we, your people, can fall prey if we are not being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So I do pray for myself and for each one here that you will cause us truly to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. And these things that may seem foreign and remote to us, these old, ancient stories of the Old Testament, that they would take on a new life and a new power in our understanding and that we would be transformed by them, that we would be driven in our daily lives by these things, that we would live truly with the recognition that our lives are hidden with Christ in you, that Christ is our life. What Christ? This Christ, whom all the scriptures built the case for the one in whom all the promises and purposes of our God are yes and amen. Father, may we become truly a Christian people and a people who can declare your excellencies, your glory that is in the face of Christ by being faithfully conformed to him and by bearing that fragrance in every place. So don't let these things be simply an intellectual exercise or a doctrinal exercise or even something tedious and boring to just move past. Truly, Father, we desire to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And I pray that you would honor that desire, that you would inflame it, and that you would cause it to be realized and fleshed out through that transforming work of your spirit. 
And Father, even as we prepare to come to the table now, I pray that you will knit our hearts together, not in any way other than the shared union that we have in Jesus our Lord. As Paul said, the unity of the faith, one Lord, one Christ, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. May we take the table in that way as people who share in the life and likeness of Jesus and who testify that we live in him, through him, by him, and it's in him that we are nourished day by day. He is our life. He is the triumph and the fullness of that life, even as we wait for the consummation to come. So bless us as we continue our worship. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.